Let's pray together. Father, you have been so good to us, and your word promises such glorious things. We pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to feel what Paul says here, and that we would be like him in not considering the sufferings of this present time worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So, Lord, we pray that you would cause what, what Paul says here about the story of the world, we pray, Lord, that it would be our story and that the hope that's articulated, a hope that doesn't see what it hope for, hopes for, but waits for it with patient endurance and perseverance, Lord, we pray that that would be our hope. And we pray that you would cause us to to yearn for the redemption of our bodies, the day when you will make all things new. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would now be active in the minds and hearts of your people so that your word would build hope for what you have promised and cause us to be those who have proven character and who are able as Paul says, to boast even in our sufferings as we wait for the glory of God. We commit ourselves to you, Father, and pray that you would do these things for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Lyndon B. Johnson came from a very poor family, and his father had been a politician of great integrity, a politician who refused to take bribes of any kind and who refused to compromise his principles in any way. And you know, people can learn funny lessons. I mean, you, you might think, well, surely Lyndon B. Johnson would learn that kind of integrity and that kind of uprightness from his own father. Well, he learned the opposite lesson. He learned that if you want to be poor, that's how you conduct yourself. And so he decided that he was going to do whatever it took to maintain political power, and to become a wealthy man. And he eventually, and as he, once he got elected to Congress, uh, he had these two great benefactors, these two men who were fabulously wealthy. And those two men knew that Lyndon B. Johnson desperately wanted to be rich. And one of these guys, a man named Charles Marsh, he was, he was I mean, almost inconceivably wealthy. He decided to do a favor for someone that he liked, and so he gave the guy a newspaper. I mean, who gives a gift like that? Who has that kind of resources that they, when they want to give someone a gift, what they give is a newspaper operation? This is, this is a man of enormous wealth. And he, he liked Lyndon B. Johnson and wanted to be a benefactor to him, and so he told Johnson about this, this sure bet in terms of, of a business opportunity. It was going to, to make Johnson a millionaire in a very short period of time. And it surprised both of these guys, Charles Marsh and George R. Brown, it surprised them both when Johnson said, I'm going to have to think about this. And then he came back after a week of deliberation and he said to them, I can't do it. I can't do that business operation because it would kill me politically. Well, the business op operation was oil. 
And Johnson was a congressman from Texas, and Texans love their oil. So it was not going to hurt him in his congressional races. And it was not going to hurt him if he wanted to upgrade to the Senate. And that's when it began to dawn on George R. Brown and Charles Marsh that Lyndon B. Johnson intended to be president someday. Because it was only if he ran for president that being an oil man would kill him politically. So this is why I'm telling you this story. Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to be president so badly that he refused something that he wanted very badly. He refused this opportunity to become a fabulous, fabulously wealthy man in a very short period of time. He denied himself, we talked about this some last week, he denied himself immediate gratification of wealth because he wanted a greater prize. As we look this morning at Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, if you, if you um, have a Bible with you, and if you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you, I would invite you to open to Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, and we're going to look at the way that Paul presents us with this Christian hope the hope of the glory that is to be revealed, and the way that he really explains all of life as, as a life that is to be hoping for this future glory. Um, so the, the first thing we're going to see in verse 18 continues from some things that we were looking at last week in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. And so as we approach verse 18, I just want to briefly remind you of, of a couple of features of verses 12 through 17. Um, the first, you remember how in verse 14, when it says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And uh, I suggested to you, and I, th I think this is correct, that Paul has in mind the way that Jesus, the Son of God, was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And I think the reason, one of the reasons that Paul is talking about that is because in this context here in Romans 8, he's just discussed in verses 1 through 11 how we need to walk by the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. And, and right before that, at the end of chapter 7, in verses uh, 15 through uh, 20 in particular, he's talking about how in our sinful flesh we have this desire to do sinful things that we hate. And, and, and then we have this other desire to do good things, and we can't do those good things. And so Paul is helping the Christians in Rome to deal with these conflicting desires within us. We have this, if, if we're born again, if we've experienced the new birth, we have a desire for righteousness, but we're also in this mortal body, this body that has these inclinations and these dispositions that are all wired toward evil. So Paul is dealing with this, and he's saying, look, You've received the same spirit, Romans 8, 15. You've received the same spirit that, that causes you to cry out with Jesus, Abba, Father, on the other great moment of temptation in his life in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and so Paul is saying, if you want to suffer, if you want to be glorified with Jesus, look at Romans 8, 17. He says there, um, if we're children, then we're heirs, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And I think that suffering in particular is the, the suffering that comes as we resist temptation. So we have these bodily, fleshly desires that we have to suffer through and we have to resist and we have to oppose by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. 
And now Paul is going to continue to talk about these things, having just said in verse 17 there, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. He now says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time. So if we ask what sufferings is he talking about, I think he's talking about the difficulties that are, that are provoked in us uh, by our sinful flesh, the difficulties that we incur, the sufferings that we occur because we are sinners. It's interesting, the word that's rendered sufferings in verse 18, if you look back at Romans chapter 7, when it says in verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. The word passions in Romans 7, 5 is the same word rendered sufferings in Romans 8, 18. So we have these, these passions that cause us suffering. And you know, sometimes people will refer to the suffering of Christ on the cross as his passion. And it's the same idea. He's, he's crucifying his flesh. He's setting aside his own desire to be to have that cup pass from him, uh, to be king in some easier way, and he's suffering through what he has to go through in order to attain the glory on the other side. And, and what Paul is saying here, Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, be, is to be revealed to us, is really the same thing that we read the author of Hebrews say when he says in Hebrews 12, 2, that we should look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that enduring the cross because of the joy set before him, that's the same thing Paul is talking about when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the, the need to do what he talked about in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think that's the suffering of the present time. We have this conflict within ourselves, and we have to be merciless with our sinful flesh. We have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5, although when he says in Romans 5 verse 2, when he says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we're rejoicing in that future revelation of glory. And he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's actually a different word from the one that we have in 8.18. That word, Romans 5.3, refers more to the general afflictions of life, the difficulties of life. This word in Romans 8.18, it seems to connote the sufferings that come upon us because of our sinful flesh, the, the, the struggle with our desires, and even the, the difficulties that our sin causes us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying that there is a glory that is going to be so astonishing, so so unimaginably wonderful. And, and to, to try to get your head around this, I would invite you to think about the best experience of your life. I don't, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what comes immediately to your mind when I say think of the best thing that's ever happened to you. And then, and then if you can, take away the fact that that experience ended 
or the fact that you couldn't keep that experience happening for yourself, the fact that it had to come to an end, and then take away anything that polluted that experience. And in our, in our fallen condition, in this fallen world, there are always those little irritants, aren't there? Those little things that agitate us, those little things that spoil the ointment, so to speak, the, the, the fly in the ointment, the, the little things that we wish it could have been, we wish that could have been right. That little, if that detail had been right, everything would have been right. So if you can take the best experience you've ever had, remove all the things that polluted it or clouded it, and then imagine it going on forever, that may be approximating, that may be approaching what Paul is talking about when he says that these, these sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It, it's, a, it's a glory of utter purity. It's a glory of moral rectitude where you, you know what's right and you want to do what's right, unlike that situation in Romans 7. It's a glory of the, the shameless enjoyment of beauty and this undiluted experience of the very glory of God. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at that third word there, for I consider. Uh, what, what, what enables Paul to endure here, what enables him to, if we were to use an analogy, you know, if you ever go to Texas Roadhouse, there are those peanuts available on the table, don't eat the peanuts. The reason you don't want to eat the peanuts is because you're at Texas Roadhouse, right? You're going to have steak. This is a steakhouse. Don't, don't sully your enjoyment. Your, don't dull your hunger with peanuts when you're about to eat steak, right? That's the kind of thing that Paul is saying here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the resistance of those peanuts, it's not worth comparing with the glory of that steak. But that word consider... It's the same word that Paul had used in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. My wife brought this to my attention. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have to think this way. We have to take our thoughts captive. We have to practice the renewing, renewing of our minds so that we think about the right things. If you sit there and salivate on peanuts and fix your eyes on peanuts and, and feel those peanuts in your mouth and your imagination, you're not going to be able to resist those peanuts. You're going to give way. And you're going to dull your ability to enjoy the steak. You don't want to do that. You want to say, who wants peanuts? Who, who, would, who would ruin their appetite with peanuts? at this restaurant. That's what we want to do. Or, I mean, to go back to Lyndon B. Johnson, Jesus says that those who are faithful to him will, will sit on thrones with him and reign with him. You don't want to do something that is going to disqualify you from a noble and honored position in the new heavens and new earth. So we have, to, we have to think this way. We have to consider with Paul that the sufferings that we have to endure in this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is, is to be revealed to us. And so what we have to do is we have to think about that glory. We have to make it so that our minds are focused on that glory, not on the things that are causing us suffering in the present time. And brothers and sisters, we all have a choice about what we're going to think about. You can choose what you are going to set your mind on. And Paul is saying, this is the way I consider it. And he says elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. So there's your application from verse 18. Think this way. Consider this, this bargain the way that Paul considers it. In verse 19, Paul's going to talk about the revelation of the sons of God. Look at verse 19. He says, for the creation waits. In our, in our house this week, as we, as we uh, read over this text repeatedly, I mean, our kids are learning literary terms, and I said, I said to my children, what is being done with creation there? And they just kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? Well, I don't, wait, they're, they're, really, it's me. I'm asking not good questions, okay? If I could ask better questions, they would give better answers. But what I'm fishing for is who waits for things, right? Pews don't wait for things. The, 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 the floor, the earth doesn't really wait for things. So what's happening with creation here? It's being personified, isn't it? Creation is being personified. Why would, why would Paul personify creation? Why would he say creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God? I think the answer is this. This is what the world was made for. The reason we read Genesis 1 earlier in the service is because God created the universe for his, his image bearers, his vice regents, males and females who bear his image and likeness to reign in this universe according to God's own character. That's why it was built. And, and the creation longs to experience the purpose for which it was made. The creation doesn't want to be reigned over by a bunch of satanic, seed of the serpent, self-worshipping, creation-destroying human beings. The creation longs to have those who live out God's character in authority over itself. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And if we want to know what that is, we, we, we keep reading. But first, let me just draw your attention to the way that these sons of God are the same people mentioned back in 8.14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 8.15. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a, this is a very thick concept in, in the Bible. In Genesis 5, uh, the, the, Moses talks about how God created man in his image and likeness, and then Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. And, and you think that through, and what it implies is that man, Adam, is a son of God in some sense. So, so Seth is Adam's son, and he's in Adam's image and likeness. This implies that Adam is God's son in his image and likeness. And this is exactly what the genealogy in Luke, the genealogy of Jesus in Luke, Luke 3.38 says. It works back through the son of so forth, all the way to back to Adam, and then it says Adam the Son of God. And then the next chapter, Luke 4, starts introducing Jesus, who was 
led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by Satan, who said to him, if you are the Son of God. So this idea of sonship, this is what it is to be in the image and likeness of God. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. One day, one day, all of the things that keep us from being what we were made to be, the impulses, the desires for forbidden things, one day all of that will be taken away. And those who have placed their faith and hope in Christ, those who have turned away from all the things that God has forbidden, for which our flesh longs, one day we will be made new. And, and the Lord will bring us out and reveal us. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. And the rivers will shout for joy. All this personification of creation. Because finally things will be the way that God intended them to be from the beginning. So you got no comparison in verse 18. you got the revelation of the sons of God in verses ni verse 19. And then we have this subjection to futility in verses 20 through 23. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, I think what Paul has in mind is the way that we read in Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's nothing wrong with it. But then we know what happens just a chapter later in chapter 3. The man and the woman transgress, and as a result of this, God speaks words of judgment over the, first the snake, then the woman, then the man. And to the man, the Lord says, cursed is the ground because of you. And it's like what God does is he takes the whole creation and he, and he subjects the whole thing to futility. And as a result of this, the the earth doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It doesn't work the way it was created to work. Our bodies don't work the way they were supposed to. Plants and animals don't work, work the way they were supposed to. Everything is subjected to futility. Why futility? I think futility because what's introduced ultimately is death. Death. And death renders all of our efforts, all of our programs, all of our ambitions futile. Because when we die... The whole project stops. And who knows whether the one who comes after, as Ecclesiastes said, will be good, wise or good or a fool. And so it's futile. Death introduces futility. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. This is not what the world wanted. But because of him who subjected it. Because God subjected it to futility. You know, these, these lines of Romans 8, verse 20, I think, present the most satisfying explanation of the way the world is and of the human condition. These verses explain why it is that we have disordered desires. These verses explain why it is that a world that a good God would make would have things like tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and mudslides and on and on we could go. These nat natural or acts of God, as the insurance companies used to call them. These verses explain what's wrong with us and with the world. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly but because of him who subjected it. And then those last two words of verse 20 are so important. In hope that the creation itself will be set 
free. This is so significant. The creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free. Paul has been talking about what is set free all through this section of Romans. Look back at Romans chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, let's start in verse 6. We know that our old man was crucified with him. So if you're, if you're somebody who has said, I'm going to agree with God about what sin is. I'm going to agree with God that God is right. God has the right to forbid certain things, to prohibit certain things, and to to issue certain instructions. And I'm going to agree with him on what those things are. And I I acknowledge and recognize that I have often transgressed. And I am a sinner. And I'm guilty before him and, and deserving of his judgment. But God put Jesus forward to pay my penalty and to accomplish my salvation. If that's you, then your old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free. So believers, this text says, have been set free. And then Paul again and again talks about this this being set free through this section. Look at what he says in chapter 7 when he talks about how we're set free from sin in chapter 6 and we're set free from the law in chapter 7. And he uses this analogy of a wife who is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, Romans 7 verse 2, when it says she is released from the law of marriage, really what's happening there is, as he says in the next verse, in verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. She's set free. So... We're free from sin, we're set free, we're free from the law, but we're not yet free from our bodies because we're still in these mortal bodies. And what Paul is saying now in Romans 8, 21 is that a day is coming when the creation, which includes our bodies, the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain, this is a future experience, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the freedom to obey. That's the freedom to recognize God's instructions and to say those are right, that's what I want, and then to walk in that way. That's the freedom that John is talking about when he says his commands are not burdensome because we've received the Spirit, this anointing that we have from him. And then Paul continues in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, let's let's start with verse 22 here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. If you are are a Christian, these words give you hope. If you are not a Christian, I don't know what your hope is going to be based upon. If you're not a Christian, I don't... I mean, a lot of people in our culture place their hope in progress. I don't think progress is really a good place to place your hopes because who defines what progress is? How do we know when we have achieved it? What is it that we are progressing toward? There's no agreement on these things. And and even if you finally get all of your your progress accomplished, 
Will it have transformed you on the inside? Will it have made you what you think you need to be? And, and I don't, I, ultimately, I don't think that progress is going to be satisfying. But people suffer horribly in life in all kinds of ways. You don't need me to tell you this. You know this as well as I do, better than I do probably. People have horrific things happen to them. I think the worst two things, the worst possible way to suffer is to think there's never going to be an end to this. There's no limit. There's, this is never going to end. And then the other thought that might compound the misery of that suffering is there's no meaning in this. There's no purpose for this. But that's not the way that Paul is talking about suffering here. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Do you see what that image does to suffering? It, it says something better is coming about as a result of this suffering. New life is coming into the world as a result of this suffering. A baby is going to be born. That, the pains of childbirth, I think, now, you know, the analogy is breaking down, but I think what Paul is talking about is resurrection life in a new heaven and new earth. That's what's going to be brought forth through this childbirth that all creation is groaning in travail as it experiences. And what that says is that, number one, there's a purpose for this suffering. There's a purpose for this suffering. It's like what the author of Hebrews says when he says that Jesus himself learned obedience through suffering and was perfected through suffering. God has a good purpose that he's accomplishing through the suffering that we're experiencing. That's, that's one aspect of, of the way that I think Christian hope can, can enable us to suffer well. The other aspect of it is it tells us there's a limit to this. A day will come when it will end and the baby will be born. The bodies will be raised. The creation will be made new. There's a limit to this suffering. It's not unlimited and it is not purposeless. Which means it's not just misery. If we've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been set free from sin, from the law, and one day we will be set free from our bondage to corruption, the way that our bodies are a part of this creation. Creation will be set free. And then in verse 23, Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I think what he's talking about when he says the first fruits of the Spirit is what he had referenced back in chapter 8, verse 15, when he says, you've received the spirit of adoption. And then he goes on and he says, we groan inwardly in 8.23 as we wait eagerly for adoption. So um, this week I talked to a friend of mine who uh, is in the process of adopting um, a son. And he's had, they've had this kid in their family for like two years. But the son still has the old last name. The last name has not been changed to the family's last name. And I said, what's up with that? And he said, the adoption process is a long process. Eventually, our name will be on his birth certificate, but it's not there yet. And that's like where we are. We've received the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit has made us alive. And if you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you. But you've not yet been adopted 
And, and what is Paul talking about when he talks about adoption? Look at verse 23 there. The redemption of our bodies. I think he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. So we've received the spirit of adoption, but we're awaiting our adoption, which is that day when our bodies will be freed and we'll be, we'll be raised, we'll be made new. And all those, all those distorted desires, all that wicked inclination... All of that will be gone, and there will, there will just be a pure wholeness and fullness where everything within us resonates with God's commands, and everything within us rejoices at the way that God has done all things well. Verse 24, verses 24 and 25, we get to the hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. What Paul is saying is, we were saved hoping that this is what would happen. We were saved hoping, believing that through Christ's death and resurrection, the power of sin has been broken, the power of the law has been removed, and because what caused death has been overcome, sin, death also will be overcome, and we will be raised, and the world will be purified. In that hope, the hope for the new heavens and new earth, the hope where we will all be in perfect agreement, and there will be no lingering disagreements about policy. There will be no lingering disagreements about how we would handle different situations. There will be no lingering disagreements about, about how, well, I wouldn't have done it that way, or I wouldn't have agreed with that person, or... I wouldn't have sided with those people. All of that will be removed, and there will be this wonderful harmony and absolute unity, which we have a foretaste of now, but it's not complete. In this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. In other words, you know, if we experience this now, we wouldn't be hoping for it. But, verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it enduring with patience. As I was thinking about these things, I was reminded of uh, some things that Tim Keller writes of in his book, Making Sense of God. And he, and he tells about this, this research that was done on um, the, the spiritual lives of African slaves in America. And these historians have looked at this, and this is what, this is what Keller writes, uh, reporting on research done by a man named Eugene Genovese. He says, it was Christianity, Genovese showed, that gave them a firm yardstick with, with which to measure and judge the behavior of their masters and to articulate a promise of deliverance as a people in this world as well as the next. You see what this hope does for us? This hope enables us to say, those people are wicked. And the hope also enables us to say, I'm going to endure this wickedness, waiting for God to judge those people. And when God judges those people, I, I'm believing that he's going to make things right. So justice and hope go together, don't they? 
There's a, there was an African-American scholar at Boston University named Howard Thurman. This is, I'm still reading from Keller here. He gave a famous lecture at Harvard in 1947 on the meaning of Negro spirituals, these songs that the slaves would sing. And he engaged the criticism that these African-American spirituals were too otherworldly, too filled with references to heaven, to crowns and thrones and the robes that they would wear when Jesus returned. The argument was that such beliefs made them docile and submissive. On the contrary, Thurman argued, this sung faith served to deepen the slave's capacity for endurance. The spirituals encompassed the Christian belief in a final judgment, a day on which all wrongs would be made right. It also included a belief in personal immortality and the reunion with loved ones forever. Out of these doctrines, the conviction grew that this is the kind of universe that cannot deny, ultimately, the demands of love and longing. And then, and then um, considering the possibility that all these things couldn't be taken literally, Thurman said, if such things were seen as mere symbols and not real, they could never have served to provide a life of hope to slaves, when the prospects for improvement were so small. He says, imagine how ludicrous it would have been to sit down with a group of early 19th century slaves and say, there'll never be a judgment day in which wrongdoing will be put right. There's no future world and life in which your desires will ever be satisfied. This life is all there is. When you die, you simply cease to exist. Our only real hope is for a better world now. This never would have enabled, their, enabled those slaves to go out and keep their heads high and live lives of courage and love. Only the Christian hope does that for us. And the Christian hope that Paul is talking about here, when he talks about how we were saved in this hope, um, Ke Keller describes this hope in four ways that I think are helpful. Number one, this hope is personal. This hope is personal to each one of us. We, we really do have, as mysterious it is, as it is, we have a personal relationship with the, with the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not as though the Christian hope is for some abstract, somehow non-personal, disconnected from who you are, future. No, it's a personal hope. Second, it's a concrete hope. It's a hope for a new heavens and new earth in which we will receive glorified bodies. Um, I told you guys recently about this, this, uh, this accident that I was in where I got hit by a four-wheeler, run over kind of by a four-wheeler, and, and my body is still healing from this. My hand is still swollen. My knee is still swollen. And um, somebody that I was talking to said to me, I'm not, I, I don't remember who it was, but he said to me, um, you know, you may never be able to do certain things again in your life. That's a small complaint. I'm really helpful. Praise God, my back wasn't broken. I'm not paralyzed. I've got so much to be thankful for. But, you know, as you get older, you lose the ability to do things that you could do when you were younger. Imagine the glory of having the fullness of health restored to you. That's the hope that we're saved in. It's concrete. It's, it's embodied. And this hope that is personal and concrete is also unimaginably wonderful. It's so good, it's so good that some people really do think it's too good to be true. 
And, and to, to that objection, I would say, read the Bible. Read the Bible and ask yourself, do I really think that this is too good for the God the Bible claims to exist to accomplish? And then finally, this hope is assured. We can be confident that God will keep his promises. So here's, a, here's another, another kind of application. Maybe I don't need to be this direct about trying to apply these things in this way. But in the same way that in 8.18 I said we should consider things the way that Paul considers them, I'm now going to say we want to fix our eyes on these hopes. We, we want to believe that God is the kind of person with the kind of character that he will keep his promises. He will do what he says he will do. And you know, a great proof of that is the fact that human beings die. Human beings die. And the reason they die is because God keeps his word. And God said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And people do. The mortality rate is 100%. God will do everything he said he would do. We can believe that he will raise the dead. We can believe that he will judge the wicked. We can believe that he will reckon people righteous by faith. He said he would. We can believe that he's going to wipe away every tear. That death will be no more. That, that there will be no uncleanness enter into the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. He will make all things new. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there are people here who don't know you, they would be intrigued by this account of the world and they would want to know you. I pray, Lord, that people would be drawn to Jesus, to his goodness, to his love, to his irresistible magnificence. And Lord, I pray that your word would do exactly what Paul says it will, that it would cause light to shine in hearts, just as light shone in the universe when you said, let there be. Father, I pray that your word would do what only your word can. I pray that it would prepare your people for the suffering that awaits us. And Lord, whatever the suffering might be, I pray that your people would know that there's a limit to it, that there's a purpose for it, and that these are birth pains. Something really good is going to come on the other side of this. And Father, I pray that you would cause us all to feel in our hearts that these sufferings, the sufferings of this life, are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. I pray that you would accomplish all this, Lord, and that you would cause it to be so firm in our hearts that it would never let us go, that we would never, never stop waiting with patience for the realization of our hopes, hopes that are founded on what your word declares, hopes that are 
enlivened by the power of your spirit. And Lord, help us to follow Jesus as we cry out with him, Abba, Father, in the midst of the things that tempt us. We pray that you'd give us the ability to set our minds on the things of the spirit that we might live. In Christ's name, amen.